want, you can go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to Acts 17. We should have the, the passage up on the screen in just a minute. But Acts 17 is where we're going to be. Uh, just want to say, if you're new to Christianity, welcome. If you're not a Christian, maybe you left Christianity and you're coming back, there's, there's nothing inside of you that scares us. There's no question that you have that's off limits. Uh, we want this to be a safe place for you. So please ask questions. Please let us find ways to serve you. And uh, we get it. Jesus says some hard things. And so we want to process those with you and, and try to see how we can walk in, uh, in this journey towards Jesus. So that's the first thing I, w- I want to tell you. The second thing is this. Uh, if I'm honest with you and myself, I'm coming into this morning with a little bit of a heavy heart. I'm coming in a little bit heavy because of the just incredibly pervasively evil racism that has reared its head again in our country over the weekend. Uh, I'm referring to all the stuff that's been happening in Charlottesville and all the, just the nightmare and the insanity of what it is. And I just want to tell you, like, if you are a follower of Jesus in the room and you don't feel any sort of anger or righteous indignation rise up at the injustice and the wrong of defaming and, and dehumanizing people made in the image of God that Jesus specifically came to rescue, not just to himself, but to each other, then there is something wrong in your heart right? There's something wrong that Jesus is actually calling us as the people of God, not just to enjoy the reconciliation that he died to purchase us, but to fight for reconciliation with other people that don't look like us, right? So this is the thing about the early church. They were known for five things, right? They were known for five things, five things that no one else in the first century was known for. The first was just radical, incredible, ethnic and racial diversity and reconciliation. This was a day and age where every religion was homogenous. Every religion was uh, a particular ethnic group of people and Christianity comes on the scene and you have Jews and Gentiles. You have uh, men and women. You have young and old. You have pagans and, and Greeks and Romans and all of these different backgrounds coming together under the same lordship of Jesus Christ. The church was known for radical ethnic and racial diversity and reconciliation. The second thing that early church was known for was incredible service to the poor. If you ask people in the first century who are those people, I don't know who they are, but they serve the poor like crazy, right? Uh, Incredible, giving away their stuff, selling their possessions to take care of the poor. The third thing the early church was known for was not retaliating when people did wrong things against them for being Christians. So if someone burned your house down or if they physically harassed you or wronged you in any way for being a Christian, one of the things the early church was known for was not retaliating but leaving vengeance to the Lord. The fourth thing the early church was known for was being incredibly pro-life. Abortion wasn't like it is today in our culture and society where uh, it usually happens uh, in the womb. Uh, In the first century, that was rare because it was so dangerous. What often happened was that women would actually give birth and oftentimes against their own will men would ask the women or force the women to throw the baby out they would literally throw babies out on the trash heap and Christians were known for seeing those babies and coming along and grabbing them and adopting them into their family they were radically radically pro-life and then the fifth thing that the early church was known for uh, was an incredibly conservative sex ethic Their, their, their sex ethic was incredibly conservative that was not a day and age that was restrictive. Uh, It was very, very um, open. You could sleep with whoever you wanted, whenever you wanted. That was just the culture of the day. And Jesus comes in and says, sex is reserved for one man and one woman in the context of marriage. Really incredibly radical conservative ethic of sex. Here's why I say that. Those five things. The first two, 
sound like being a Democrat. The last two sound like being a Republican. The middle doesn't sound like anybody because we all love to retaliate. And you have to learn to be okay with the fact that Jesus will say something that bothers you and doesn't fit in your political perspective because this book transcends any political party that you have. And there are things about being a Christian and, and having an ethic of the kingdom of God that will run contrary to whatever's broken in your soul. So this is a chance for all of us to not just repent of the racism that exists in our country, which, by the way, is long from dead. Uh, it's not just a chance to repent of the racism that's in our state, but it's a chance to repent of the racism that's in my heart and your heart. It's a chance for us to together push back the darkness that exists on our world. It's a chance for us together fight for really bearing one another's burdens and standing in solidarity with our minority brothers and sisters. So that's what I'm calling you to do if you're a follower of Jesus, right? This is what Jesus is calling you to do. Feel the heaviness of it. Feel the weight of it. The good news about what happened over the weekend is that we saw more darkness that we need to push back as the people of God, amen? God is not up in heaven stressed. He's not up in heaven anxious. He, he's not confused. He knows what he needs to do, and he's doing it through the church. So take heart. Even though I'm coming in with a heavy heart, we can cast our burden on him because he cares for us. So now let's get to the actual sermon that I prepared to come and preach. So let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you so much for this chance that we have to sit under the authority of the word. And we just say there are times where you tell us to do something that I don't like it. <laughs> I'd rather not do it. And so would you help us today? Would we become dependent, needy people that look to you for answers? And today we take the burden that we feel. We take the anxiety and the chaos and the stress that we feel. God, we take the anger that we feel and we cast our care on you. And we, we thank you, Jesus, that you care for us. And so today as we talk about what it is to be human, would you help us see you for who you really are? God, would you help us embrace how you've wired us to be? And please, Jesus, please draw people to yourself that are far from you. We love you, Jesus. We're grateful that we get to be you, with you, to know you, to be loved by you. We, we receive all of that in your name today. Amen. All right, so today we get to kick off a new series called Free to Be Human. And I love the subtitle of the series. It's uh, Embracing Our Limitations. And I know that just makes you happy. That's like warm and fuzzy. Free to be human, embracing our limitations. There's one thing that we don't like to talk about. It's our limitations as humans. So why are we doing this series? Well, real simply, if you've ever kind of thought to yourself, man, I really wish that I was kind of like the Energizer Bunny and I could just keep going and going and going. I really wish that I could be in all places at all times. I really wish I could know everything, like a human version of Google, or I, I wish I had another week inside of my week, then this series is for you. Uh, if you've ever felt stressed, if you've ever felt anxious, if you've ever been overwhelmed, if you've ever felt like life is out of control and you feel chaotic, and if you're, if you're ever just, you, you don't know how to engage it, you just feel completely out of control, this series is for you. Now, some of those things that I just described, you might be hearing and going, yeah, that's what it is to be human. Stress, anxiety, being overwhelmed, feeling out of control. You just described the daily norm for Western humanity, right? Uh, why is that not okay? Well, he, here's what I want you to see, that maybe, just maybe, God didn't create us to be that way. Maybe, just maybe, what's really happening is that we're not okay with the position that we're, our, of our creation, our creatureliness, and we've actually wanted to, in many ways, become like God. 
but not in a good way, right? Here's the problem in our Western culture is it's very Darwinian in nature. And what I mean by that is this. There are a lot of things that Darwin said, but one of the things that he said that really influences the way we think and see the world is this concept of survival of the fittest. This idea that it's the strong that thrive and excel. It's those that are, are that gain control of their life. They're the ones that are gonna be glorified. The fittest excel in life, but the weak, if you're weak, then you're gonna come to nothing. If you don't have it all together, then you should be worried because you're not gonna thrive in life. And even as a culture, what we do because of that is we look at people and we now start to put value and dignity on people based on what they can produce and how they can contribute. And if you can't produce and you can't contribute and you can't climb the ladder, then you don't have as much value and you don't have as much dignity. We're totally Darwinian in nature. And here's what's happening. You and I, whether you realize it or not, are driving ourselves into the ground, trying to be everywhere, trying to know everything, trying to, to do it all. We wanna be like God and we're driving ourselves into the ground. Life is falling apart and we don't know what to do about it. That's why we're doing this series, Free to Be Human, because Christianity has another way of seeing things. There's another option out there. It's not just, yeah, continue to drive yourself into the ground, but maybe God isn't asking you to be everywhere and know everything and do everything. Maybe God is asking you to embrace the reality of who he is and how he's wired you to be. So we're gonna take the next several weeks to talk about what it means to be human, and today we're gonna kick that off by talking about the concept of being dependent. What do you think of when you hear the word dependent? What do you think of when you think of being a, a, a dependent person? Uh, that's probably not a, a good thing when you think of it. You might think of being codependent. You might think of neediness. You might think of someone not really taking responsibility for their life. Culturally, when we hear that word dependent, it, it doesn't ring the bell as a good thing. It's like, oh yeah, we don't wanna be dependent. We wanna take responsibility. And here's actually really what's going on. We don't wanna be independent because we want to be free. And to be free as people, you have to be independent. In fact, I can't think of something that our culture values more than independence and autonomy. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to live my life. Don't tell me what's right and wrong. That might be true for you, but I want to be independent and autonomous and self-actualizing, and I want to be able to say what I think is best. I don't need you in my life. I certainly don't want to be dependent because dependent equals bondage and slavery. Now, here's what's happened, and I don't know if you've You've probably seen this in, in your life and the lives of others. It's led to not more fulfillment, not more joy and happiness as a culture, but it's actually led to more loneliness and isolation. There are all these stats, and I, I don't wanna give them to you, but there's all these stats about how young people are actually more lonely and more isolated now than those people that are 55 and up, right? There's actually an epidemic of isolation and loneliness because we've thrown off any sort of connection that we have to other people and any dependence that we may think we need, and we're instead living out of ourselves, and that's brought not more self-fulfillment, but more loneliness. I love this quote from Tara Parson, and she says, a few, a few hundred years ago, the heart of American exceptionalism was, of course, that we were different than other nations. We were free from the historical forces that impacted other countries, but today, all we are is exceptionally lonely, the isolated states of America. We are untethered by historical forces, all right, free from mom's hugs, dad's homemade chili, and the pillars of extended family. She's not a Christian and she's saying, yeah, we, we, we've isolated, all right? We've become autonomous and now we don't have mom's hugs and we're missing out on dad's chili. 
and all the good that comes from being connected and dependent on other people in your life. But here's how I see it. As a pastor, what I see is as people come in Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, what often seems to be happening is that on the outside, everything looks really great. You paint a smile on, how you doing, brother? Good, how about you? Good. I don't know why I asked, because I knew the answer, right? And we go through this weird ritual of, you good, you good, you good, great, we're good. Uh, And then all of a sudden, what's happening below the surface is that we're dying. Most people are dying a million tiny little deaths throughout the week, and they can't ever open up, they can't ever tell anybody, because if you actually open up with what's really going on, if you actually tell people who you really are, what's, what's deep down in your soul, then that means that you don't have it all together, and that means that you need help, and that means that you are dependent, and to be dependent means that you're weak. We don't want to look weak. So we paint a smile on, and we pretend that everything is going okay. You're up to your eyeballs in financial debt. Instead of reaching out to somebody that could help you, what you decide to do is tough it out on your own and It would be humiliating to say that your finances are out of control, so I'll take out another line of credit and I will fix this problem. I don't need to be dependent. Instead of opening up about the state of your marriage, that all is not well at home, what you do is you just kind of put on the face and pretend, no, we've got this. We've got this. We don't need to see the counselor. We don't need to open up with people in our community. We've got this. Instead of talking about your addictions, the things that kind of, pull you back down that you you can't seem to get rid of it's like no I I don't want to talk about that until it's a victory story do you know what I mean by that I'll eventually share this once I've beaten it in community group yeah I used to struggle with fill in the blank I don't now Jesus really helped me but what really is being said is I want to save me I want to help me I don't want to show people the weakness and the dependency and the neediness that I am as a human I've got this and there's a thousand other ways that we do it And it's literally killing us. So let me just ask the question, how did God intend for this whole humanity thing to work? How did God intend when he created us, how did he design us? Did he create us to be self-sustaining, independent, autonomous people that have no need? Or is there more to the story? What I want to do is I want to take you to Acts 17 and I want to read you this passage because I think what Paul says to a group of non-Christians in Athens is profound for understanding uh, both who God is and who we are. And here's the big idea. You always have to start with who God is if you really want to understand who you are. So look at this, Acts 17 verse 22. Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus, uh, some translations will say Mars Hill. It's where the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers of the day would sit and they would talk about the different philosophies and religions of the day. Paul stands in front of them. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him Yet actually he is not far from each one of us. For in him 
We live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. There are a few things that I want to pull out of this passage for you. Here's the first one. I want you to notice the self-sufficiency of God. It's crazy, isn't it, that Paul is talking to these Athenian peoples. Uh, This was a very religious group of people. And they had lots and lots of gods and lots and lots of religions. And the way that their religions worked is each god had their own sphere of influence and their own focus. And so you might have the god of the crops and the god of the sea and the god of love. So if you're going to plant a garden, what you need to do is you need to build this temple, sacrifice to the god of the crops, and then in turn, because you've done something for him, he will do something for you. He'll bless your crops. If you're going out on a Friday night date, you do your best to look good, pray to the god of love, Make this killer. Uh, help, you know, help them put on the drunk glasses. Make, them, you know, make me look great. All right, bless this date. And then you go out on your date, and then the God would you know, give you favor or blessing because you've done something for the God. Or you, you need to travel across the sea. Well, sacrifice and pray to the God of the sea. That God will in turn respond. So this was the religion of the day, and they're, they're curious about what Paul's talking about because he's talking about this other God. And he shows up and he says, no, 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 God's not like that because your view of God's is that they're dependent on you uh, and you're dependent on them. Like you need them to do something for you, but they really need you to put them in a nice home, a temple, to sacrifice to them and feed them by giving them food and doing all these other things. They need you just as much as you need them. But this God, the God of the Bible, you cannot put him in a temple made by human hands. This God is not just the God of a sphere or a, a focus. He's the Lord of heaven and earth which in, in, in Greek is a way of saying all things, that everything he's the Lord of. There's nothing outside of his control or his power or his sovereignty. He is self-sufficient. Now, I don't need to bang the drum of this point. You know this. Like, I'm talking to Bible Belt people. You know that, that, that God from Genesis to Revelation is described as the uncreated creator of all things. He's the one that no one thought of him no one sustains him he himself has always been he created all things and he holds all things together over and over in the old testament the people of israel would get this vision of god that was wrong where they started to think that god needed them these sacrifices and and bringing him all their their prayers and their worship they started to think maybe this is what god needs and over and over god has to say things like this in psalm 50 he says every beast of the forest is mine the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field. It's mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. If I need a, a sandwich, I'm not coming to you to make it for me. If I need help with something, if I need you to provide, you don't have what I need because I have all things. Over and over, the Bible describes God as this all-powerful, self-sustaining, self-sufficient being This is who he is. And and I think, here's the reality. Let me just pause here for just a minute. I think we like this truth about God, especially those of us that are Christians. I think we like this. It's like, yes, go God, you're big, you're powerful. We love that big vision of God. This is what we want to put in art in our home or on our coffee mugs. God is powerful. He's self-sustaining. No one can give him anything. He has it all. He doesn't need counsel or advice from you. He's all powerful. Here's the problem. The problem is we love this vision of God just as long as you and I can also be like that too. So God, we want you to be self-sustaining and all-powerful and we want to be like you. And so here's the second thing I want you to see, not just the self-sufficiency of God, I want you to see the profound neediness of humanity. 
the profound neediness of humanity. Look at what Paul says in verse 25 of Acts 17. He's not just talking about God, he's also saying something about us. Nor is God served by human hands as though he needed anything. Why? Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Think about those three words. Life, breath, everything. What do you need God for? Life, breath, and literally everything. There's nothing that you don't need God for. Your heartbeat, your breath, the the job that you have, the place that you, like everything about your existence, the entire universe that's being held together by him, not by you. There's nothing that you have that he needs and everything that you need, he has. The complete neediness of humanity. I was thinking about this idea of being needy and dependent um, and realizing that I'm about to experience that in a, in a new way as my wife is gonna be giving birth to uh, our little boy here in just a couple weeks. Uh, I've got two little girls, a five-year-old and a three-year-old and a little boy in a few weeks that's on, on his way and I'm thoroughly freaked out about it. I currently live in the world of Barbies and dresses and I'm singing you know, princess songs in the car or in the shower by myself. Um, so... Uh, that's the world I live in, and I love it. It's like, this is great. I feel at home right now, playing with Barbies. I, I could do this all day long. This is, tell them I, they come up to me in their dress, you look beautiful, you look pretty. I've got it on lock right now, and it's fun. About to have a little boy. His name is Bear, Bear Burkhart. If you don't like it, that's fine. It's my child, not yours. Um, <laughs> true story, we're gonna name him Bear, and uh, excited about him kind of coming in to terrorize our world and destroy things and be a rowdy little boy. But here's the thing, like this boy will be totally dependent on me and my wife for literally everything. Totally dependent. He'll literally do nothing good for me. He won't come out of the womb with like handfuls of money to help pay for hospital bills, right? He won't be like, hey dad, when do you need me to mow the lawn? I got it, give me some chores. Instead what he'll do is he'll lay there, he will cry, he will eat, he will sleep, and he'll blow out his diaper and do nothing else. That's it. And my wife and I are gonna love him for it. We're gonna love him for it. Why? Because he's ours. He's our boy, he's our son. I don't want him to be independent of me. I want him to be dependent. There's something special about having an infant, a newborn that looks up to you and you're realizing, I literally have to keep this thing alive. It's on me. I I remember leaving the hospital with my wife and it was like, oh, we've got this. The doctor is helping us with all these things. And then they do that scary thing where they give the baby to you and they put it in the car seat and they like wave to you as you drive away. Like, wait, you're not coming with us? I, I don't know if I can keep this thing alive. And so here's the thing. I love this idea of this infant, this little boy being totally dependent on me because there's no other way for him to understand what it is to have a relationship with a, with a dad and for me to enjoy my relationship with my son if it's not based on dependency. That's how he matures. That's how he grows. That's how he learns how to be a human being. He's dependent on me. Listen, we as Human parents, we fail. We're imperfect. God says, what mother among you would forget her nursing child? And even if you could, I will not forget you. God is different in the sense of, he he looks at us and even though we're imperfect and we get frustrated with our kids, God, he enjoys the reality that he is the one that is all sufficient and we are the one that is profoundly needy. 
everything that we have, he is joyfully stepping into that relationship, eager to give, eager to serve, eager to bless. This is the way God intended it to be. Listen to A.W. Tozer, his amazing book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He says, man is a created being, a derived and contingent self who of himself possesses nothing but is dependent each moment for his existence upon the one who created him after his own likeness. The fact of God is necessary to the fact of man. Think God away and man is no ground of existence. Here's the third thing I want you to see. I want you to see the craziness of sin because that's exactly what we've done. We've thought God away. What we do instead of being content with our creatureliness as humans, what we've done is that we have bought the lie that Adam and Eve bought in the garden. The very first lie that was ever told was this. Hey, you can be like God. If you make this decision, if you do this, you can be like God too and know good from evil. You can be like God. And that's the same lie that we have bought over and over and over. Yeah, God, we want you to be all powerful, but we wanna be powerful too. You can be self-sustaining and autonomous. We want to be self-sustaining and autonomous too. We can be like God. And what we've done is we've disconnected ourselves from the source of life. And rather than staying inside of our creatureliness, what we've done is we've rejected God. We've pushed him off of his throne and we have sat in his chair. We get to call the shots. We get to make the rules. No one can tell me what's right or wrong. It's my life to live. I'm an autonomous being. This is the craziness of sin. John Stott, in probably my favorite book I've ever read, The Cross of Christ, he says, we've rejected the position of dependence that our creatureliness inevitably involves, and we've made a bid for independence. Worse still, we've dared to proclaim our self-dependence, our autonomy, which is to claim the position occupied by God alone. We sit in his chair and we make the call, we make the shots, and we don't get help when we need it and life falls apart. Here's how crazy it is. This is every time we sin, rejecting God at the fundamental core of what it is, it's like a baby trying to disconnect the umbilical cord in the womb. It's like a fish doing everything it can to flop out of the water because it wants to be freed from restrictions, wants to be on the shore. It's like a diver who's so frustrated at the, the, the reality that I'm not free enough to go 150 feet down, so I'm going to jettison my oxygen tanks, and I'm going to do this on my own. It's crazy. It doesn't work. And this is what we've done. The story of the Bible is a story of God creating so that he would be the all-powerful, self-sustaining being that is giving us what we need, serving us in all the ways that we need, providing for us at every level, and rather than us embracing who he was and embracing who he made us to be, we've rejected him and we've rejected our original design and we've become subhuman. That's what sin does. Now, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And what that's trying to say is that when you disconnect yourself from the source of life, necessarily death has to follow. Thankfully, that's not where the story ends. The story doesn't end with the wages of sin is death. Put the book back up on the shelf. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. You see, here's the good news of the gospel, and and this is the, the wonder of grace, the last thing I want you to see. 
The wonder of grace is this, that though we had disconnected ourselves from him, though we had sought to find life and meaning and identity apart from him, God in his unbelievable mercy, he looked at us and he did not say, well, serves you right. You've chosen. That's the quest that you want for independence. Have fun. I hope it works out well. What God has done is instead, as we've rejected him and ran from him, he has sought after us, and he has pursued us. And I love that the God of the Bible doesn't say, okay, I'll come and get you when? Once you fix this, and once you change this, and once you get, all, you know, get it all in order, then I'll step in and I'll love you. No, the God of the Bible, he comes when we are dead in sin. Literally have no life in us. Ephesians 2 says that what he does is by his grace and because of his love, he makes us alive with Christ Jesus. When we were far from God, he brings us home. When we had rejected him, he still receives and accepts us by grace. This is the unbelievable, unfathomable grace of God. And here's how he does it. Jesus, the creator of all things, the one that we read about in Genesis 1, chose to become the most dependent human being that has ever lived. He literally enters human history, not as this all-powerful, blazing, fiery king. He enters human history as a baby. What's more dependent than a baby? He literally is relying on Mary and Joseph for survival. God, who holds all things together, needs Mary to stay alive. And then Jesus, he doesn't grow up and live a life of autonomy and independence. Jesus grows up and he lives the most free life that anyone has ever lived and the most dependent life that any human has ever lived. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 5.30. He says, I can do nothing on my own. That doesn't sound like this all-powerful, self-sustaining God. It's the humility of Jesus. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus says this, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me in John 8. I don't do anything on my own authority. I only open my mouth and say what the Father says I can say. Dependency. Jesus didn't just need God the Father. He needed others. He needed community. He needed people. This is so crazy to me. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's about to die on a cross in a matter of hours. He's, he genuinely is uh, sorrowful. He's freaked out. He's, he's not okay in this moment. And look at what he does. Look at Matthew 26. Taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Jesus comes to his friends and he says, I I'm so sorrowful that I feel like I could die in this moment. Will you please just watch with me? Will you be with me? Will I, can I experience community with you? I need you in this moment. Jesus, the most dependent human being. And then listen, this led him in his humility and dependence so much so that he goes to the cross and right before he does, hear his prayer to God the Father. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, not my autonomy, not my independence, not what I want, not my will, but your will be done. And there appeared to be an angel from heaven strengthening him and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus, to the last breath, was completely, totally dependent on God. He was praying to his Father, and he was saying, what, whatever you want, not what I want. If you just contrast for just a minute, Adam in the garden, and Jesus in his. <laughs> Adam in the garden of Eden, you can be like God. 
great. I'll take that choice. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was God, and yet he chose to lay aside his rights to divinity and embrace our humanity and get in the mud and the muck and the mire and the suffering of this world and then go to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus died in our place so that people who have nothing, who are broken and completely dependent, can experience the wholeness and humanity recovered and forgiveness of sins and restoration of all that God intended. That's what Jesus does. So, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is not a story of independent, autonomous, powerful people that have cleaned up their life to find God. This is a story of broken desperate, unrighteous people that literally have nothing to offer God, nothing to bring to the table, nothing to wheel and deal with, and we come empty and hurting and naked, and that's exactly how God receives us. In fact, can I tell you something shocking? God will not receive you when you come with bags of your own righteousness in hand. He will not receive you when you come with your own power and your own autonomy and This is my life. No, you are submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ and you come empty and broken and he will take you. Listen to what he says. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So today, do you feel overwhelmed? Do you feel like you can't control life? Do you feel like addiction is having the last word? Do you feel like there's, no, there's nothing inside of you that God should look at and, and find and go, yeah, that's why I love you? If that's what you would say, then you are ripe. You are the perfect type of person to experience the profound mercy and love of Jesus today. He's calling out to you. You may have come in here and dragged yourself in and thought, oh, please, God, don't look at me. But God is looking right at you, and he's smiling, and he's inviting you to himself.